Corey, how are you, sir? Well, I'm great, Matthew. How you doing? All good over here. I'm just slightly disappointed by the fact that the uranium market, yet again, is failing to light up and delight shareholders. Uh, we're in a bit of a lull at the moment. Well, therein lies the opportunity, Matthew, because uh, the contrarian investors will get it because this is an incredibly dynamic space and it's setting it itself up for an incredible run. I believe. Right. Okay. Well, let, let, let's talk about that. The, we know about some of the big drivers. Obviously, um, utilities are not yet kind of um, jumping aboard, it seems. We've very little in terms of uh, contracting going on out there, meaningful contracting going on out there. Um, we've, what we have seen is think big movements, you know, from Russia, China, mopping up everything that Kazakhstan has to offer, it seems. Um, the West seems to have missed a boat, the, the boat there somewhat. So, I mean, what, what's your take on what's going over, on over there in Kazakhstan? Well, you know, it, 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 it's, it's over there in Kazakhstan. But uh, my, my take is, you know, some of that uranium or a lot of that uranium is at risk. And, and I say that because, you know, the Kazakhs are sort of caught in a precarious position. They're sitting uh, right against uh, China and Russia. And, of course, we all know what's happening geopolitically. Um, so, you know, I, I do believe the closer ties to Russia there are probably long term a bit of a, a bit of a question mark, I think, for Kazakh production and security of supply, um, despite the way it may have felt over the last 10 years or so. Um, so I, I'm watching that space closely and, and seeing what uh, what might come of that. Um, so so that that's a tough position to be in. So where do let's call it Western utilities turn to? Where do they turn to to secure that supply in jurisdictions that perhaps aren't as closely linked to Russia or China? And that is a good question. Well, what is what is happening out there? Because it's like it seems to be like all companies like we talk to say we need to be incentivized. We need the price to be right, and the price is like slowly creeping up. You know, you know, obviously well shy of sixty bucks, but it, it, it's obviously and compared to two years ago, that's that's fantastic. But it's still not enough. We're all expecting this kind of hockey stick type reaction to not only the spot price, but the equities that we're all supporting or invested into. Um, but it's still not there. What's it going to take? Well, I, I, I think the hockey stick's there. I think it's just wound up for a slap shot. Yeah, that's using Canadian hockey terminology, perhaps. But uh, I, think, I think the point is that is to come. And, um, you know, as we saw, even in the last cycle, it's a bit of a log jam and then it goes. And um, I think this time when it goes, it's going to be a sustained go. And I know we said that a year and a half ago, but I think that was just a step change warming up to what is inevitable. So what is happening out there? Well, I mean, it's well now utilities inventories, especially in the West, at least our U.S. market in particular, where, uh, you know, a lot of those reactors, large reactor fleet resides, um, have very low inventories and um, they're... They have to be having conversations right now about the contracting, the long-term contracting, because security of supply is is the issue. And if you can't go out there and find it in the spot market, which looks like that's the case, then you have to go out and contract it. And being such an opaque market, we're probably not going to hear about it, what's going on right now, but you're going to hear about it in the next, uh, I believe, the next uh, three, six, maybe even nine months. So... You know, I, I think I think that hockey stick is just out in front of us, wound up for that slap shot. And, um, you know, we're not even talking about, okay, you secure the pallets, but now how do you convert it and get it into the reactor? And I think that's a different question that's very concerning for at least for the last 10 months. So um, 
That's not it has been. It has been. But mm-hmm. again, there's a massive dependence on Russia for that in terms of their rich uranium. There's a bit, they own a big part, segment of that market. And yes, governments are talking the game of, you know, um, nuclear is now in the room. We can talk about it. But it's going to take a time, can take time to deal with the enrichment component. It needs financing and needs licensing, it needs permitting. It takes time. You know, are we five years away, 10 years away from being self-sufficient in this new deglobalized environment we live in? And what do we do in the, in the meantime? I, I don't know if there's an answer to that. I mean, what, what are you, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are we going to be able to do? What do we do in the meantime? I, I think, I think you, 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 in, in terms of utilities securing that converted material for reactors, uh, they better get on it. And, and I, I, I think that's, that's just real. So, you know, right now it's a, uh, it's somewhat stable, let's call it, but boy, you know, to have 40% of your enrichment conversion capacity sitting in Russia at the moment. Um, that's not a short-term fix if it goes sideways. And I think it's just on that edge of going sideways. So, you know, you're correct. You know, it, recognize the problem. You go, okay, well, let's put 40% more enrichment sitting in, in uh, non-Russian hands. Well, I mean, that doesn't happen overnight. It's a high-tech business. You've got to permit it. You've got to build it, get it approved and build it. And then you've got to staff it. This is all a high-tech stuff. This doesn't happen overnight. And, and I think, you know, that's just a fundamental problem sitting there. So what do you do? Well, you start building up your inventories where you can't. And I think utilities are going to have to start doing that because if they don't, guess what? You know, they're going to, they're going to be faced with a, a bit of a problem. And um, that's not an easy one to fix. Right. It's not an easy one to fix. Um, I guess the implications are, as uranium investors or investors in uranium equities, um, it's that, it sounds quite delicious. You're thinking, well, that's that's a nice cocktail for a, a sharp rise in uranium price. But ultimately, it still comes back to the problem that the utilities don't have the enriched uranium in whatever form they need it um, sitting there t- today. So there's a, there's a massive problem coming down the line. Are you, are you, what are you hearing in terms of on, on the ground, um, you know, become a, like you're ex-Cameco, you, you know, you, 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 you know a few people and you've talked to a few people regularly, I'm sure. What, what are you hearing on the ground in terms of the, the governments stepping in and actually doing something about that on the enrichment side? I'm staying away from the uranium equities at the moment. Is other things happening in the background? We're just going to remove red tape. Is, it going, is the funding going to be there? Is the incentives going to be there? To kind of you know increase the um, capacity at existing facilities or the new facilities planned, or should we be like looking elsewhere to solve our problems? <laughs> elsewhere, uh, else where would you look to solve your problems? I mean, uh, well, I'm, I'm saying I'm talking about non-nuclear solutions. If the whole I, nuclear I, sector is basically really. you know kicking itself up, kicking itself in the butt, which is what it seems to be doing at the moment. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So yeah, there, of course, there all are alternatives, but some of those alternatives we're trying to get off of. I think that's, that's one of the keys here. What is your alternative? And there just aren't a lot that makes sense other than nuclear. So how do you solve that? Well, you know, I think you're seeing, uh, you're seeing it out of the U.S. The Par- Department of Energy is starting to take this seriously, whether it's just at the primary domestic supply or let's call it North American supply front and incentivizing that in some ways. Uh, you're seeing incentivization on primary discovery and potential supply here in Canada where you're getting credits now to explore for uranium. That's just happening in the province of Saskatchewan here in the Athabasca Basin. So, and that's just new. I think it just came out yesterday actually from the province. So you're starting to see this incentivization for uranium for all critical metals really like copper, nickel. Nickel is obviously one of our big uh, portfolio components, um, you know, 
built around that whole story of generate the clean electricity, move it with copper and store and deliver it to the end user with nickel. I mean, that's that's well known in our portfolio, Can Alaska. But I think what you're seeing here is governments moving toward finding solutions and cutting that red tape going, look, we have to do this. We've got to find the solution. Undoubtedly, when it comes to conversion for the West, it has to be either Europe or the US. I mean, those are the biggest nuclear fleets out there, non-Russian or Chinese. So you're going to have to see the US in particular, in my view, step in and go, we're just going to get it done. It still will take time. As long as you have that line of sight, it will give the utility some hope that uh, their security supply will be uh, will be there. And what that all means is that now you have North American domestic supply that might become even more important to feed into that conversion facility. So, you know, I think it's a great scenario for for explorers. It's a great scenario for mid tier producers or even the large producers like Cameco. Um, and that's all connected right into the utilities. So it really is an incredible scenario shaping up. And those solutions will be had because this is a major issue on a global scale. It, it, it definitely is. You know, you, you talk about nuclear power now has that like momentum in, in terms of that global energy transition. You know, you've got your governments, nations, you know, reassessing uh, the benefits of achieving carbon neutrality via nuclear. So it, it's exciting time. But there's a, there's a big gap um, here, um, which is not being dealt with, and I think that that's the thing that can, um, in terms of that whole energy transition conversation, concerns me and interests me. Um, we better get back to all things uh, uranium, though, in terms of what companies like yourselves uh, do in an environment like that. Do you feel yourself? Um, do you think you're more valuable as a result of that that situation? Would you kind of feel at the moment, in the moment now, a little bit exposed by this kind of lack of, you know, a cohesive, coordinated, um, consolidated effort by governments? Oh, boy. Uh, do I feel exposed or does the company feel exposed? Um, in this moment, in this moment. Yeah, in, in this moment, I think the exposure, in, in, in my view, is, is honestly to the positive, Matthew. And I, and I say that genuinely because um at the end of the day uh this there will be solutions made and you're going to have to supply that primary uranium and that's our game at can alaska is discovery discovery of that pipeline of projects that is lowest cost hopefully that's why we're focused in the athabasca basin among the lowest cost you know sources of of that uranium fuel and you know we've got multiple discoveries on the go right now and and i think the exposure to the upside, in my view, is that because we're in a lull, now is the opportunity for investors in particular to go, okay, now is the time to position yourself in, in, in this lull in companies that actually have something going on. There's something going on in the right jurisdiction that will feed into this whole story, this whole narrative of how do we get to carbon-free energy that's base load like nuclear and in an environment where you just have to have more supply found. And that's our game, finding the supply. And right. The reason I asked, the reason I asked for it, and I've got to say this, is um, you've obviously put out some um, news recently about optioning Nickel Project, and you're talking about a spin-out as as well. It wasn't a case of, oh, man, this Urim thing just is too hard. After all these years, it's a case of, as I think as you've explained, it's it's we we need kind of green energy supplied with green metal into and delivered by a, an, another green metal. So it's the uranium copper nickel portfolio approach for you. 
I mean, why, why, or, or maybe it's not. Tell me, why, 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 why nickel? Why now? Why nickel? Why now? It actually started five years ago and no one cared about nickel. And I think that's the key. No one was thinking about nickel and how it fit into this whole clean energy transition. So I give, give credit to just before my tenure at Canalaska, management and the board getting into the nickel and copper space. And why is that important? Because you simply have to tie it in with clean energy production, clean energy movements in copper, and clean energy storage and delivery, which primarily is class one nickel. Coming out of places like Manitoba and the Thompson Nickel Belt, among the largest nickel belts on the planet. So we saw the opportunity from a project generation perspective to fit into that very nice clean energy movement. And now what do we have? We have Tesla cars. We have all these vehicles of which the batteries are largely nickel, among other things, driving around the roads. Well, that all takes discovery. That all takes production. And the big players in the nickel space have told me quite openly that they cannot source new nickel supply to feed into contracts. And now you're seeing companies, you know, maybe like Glencore, maybe BHP or Rio Tinto coming in and going, okay, we're going to change our business model. We're actually going to feed juniors, you know, a little bit of money to go out and explore and hopefully make these discoveries. And we're seeing that happen just in the last six to 12 months. So what are we doing at Canalaska? We're positioning our district scale nickel portfolio, second only to Valet in Manitoba, into a spin-out company for our shareholders, trying to monetize it for them. They've been very patient over the last five years. Uh, we'll get that moving uh, hopefully by year end and, and on its own um, and, and financed. And then we're also doing deals on the other pieces of that portfolio with a company like Volterra Resource Corporation, which has an interest in investing up to $9 million in four of our uh, our nickel-built projects. So, I mean, it's just an incredible time to start monetizing this. And if you think about nickel, uranium, yes, copper, yes, nickel, um, there just isn't enough known out there to feed all of this demand. And you're seeing it, you're seeing it from the big companies that they're turning away contracts. Who would have thought that five years ago? And here we are. It's, I think I think the interesting thing you just said to me there was it kind of reminded me about what's going on with the rest of the kind of the, the metal um, ecosystem. You know, you've got basements like copper, where in fact you all talk the game of supply demand gap fundamentals and all of you know we're running out of this stuff. It's harder to find. It's more expensive to find. There's less coming into production, so we're all doomed. Thank you. Uh, but we, 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 we as investors are looking at and okay, going, well, like realistically, you know, which are the companies that we, sh we should be backing because they've got real management teams with real assets, which are, you know, more than likely going to become a mine. I, you know, we don't particularly like the kind of momentum play, sentiment play. We, 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 we kind of like that. The, the reality of this, this new world we find ourselves in, which was this kind of like, you know, anti-globalization, it seems for, you, you, you kind of quite rightly reference the fact that lithium companies are getting OEMs, automotive OEMs, battery manufacturers, etc., piling in, going upstream, investing in these companies. You're seeing it in nickel, a lot going on, M&A going on in nickel, a lot of JV going on in nickel, and a, and a lot of money being made available to nickel projects uh, specifically. A little bit of you know, copper in there too. Uranium because it's so small, is not attracting those sorts of players, is not attracting that sort of interest, and certainly not attracting that type of new money into the space. I mean, I hope it does in the enrichment side. Maybe that's a conversation for another day. But again, for guys like you, 
your portfolio player and your kind of the, the JV here, where you're getting a little bit of money and, and you're spinning stuff out, and it's, you're, you're kind of spinning the plates as as it were to kind of keep relevant and keep going and keep the cash flowing in a non non dilutive way. It's a, which is brilliant, but generally, more broadly, the uranium yeah, explorer junior space is just not attracting that type of money. You know, it, you, we've seen spurts a spot for spot physical uranium trust, but they've got their own model. They've got their own thing going on there. They're picking, they're mopping up physical. There's no one big like that, no one financial like that, no one industrial like that coming in. It's, it's just a lot of M&A internally to try and look a little bit bigger and a little bit more attractive and maybe distract from the fact that they're not actually producing anything. But where, where's, how's this space going to stay alive? That's what I'm intrigued by. How, when's the money coming in? When's it flow in? Good question, Matthew. But I, I'm going to, I'm going to take it back to the 70s. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Athabasca Basin at that time. We all know what happened in the 70s, right? We had the energy embargoes. We had all that sort of big nuclear buildout coming. Um, everyone wanted to be in the uranium game. Well, where did that money come from? It came from big oil. A lot of the discoveries made in the Athabasca Basin were built around Gulf, um, all these big Chevron, all these large ESO was in there in a big way making discoveries. In fact, you know, the Rabbit Lake deposits and, and Eagle Point, that was all Gulf minerals. Gulf, the big oil company. So I think, I think as we move away from fossil fuels and energy production from fossil fuels, they're not going to go away completely. But as, as the world shifts toward that, I'm actually looking at big oil to be one of the potential sources of new investment into places like the Athabasca Basin. Now, right now, it's a bit of a small market for them, but it was a game changer in the 70s. And that's when a lot of the discoveries happened is when that outside oil investment came in because they're going, okay, oil's a problem. Energy production from uranium, yep, let's get in on that. Um, the trick will be making the discoveries big enough for these big companies to come in and actually take a piece. So, you know, that's a bit of amusing, but if you lean back on history, I think that's the type of investment that will flood in at some point. We're not quite there yet on the build-outs, the reality of the build-outs, the nuclear build-outs, probably mostly driven by small modular reactors, the SMRs. But that's going to be a bit of a game changer. And when the opportunity presents itself, I think you're going to see you're going to see the Glen cores of the oil space, for an example, coming in and wanting to be a part of that story. And, um, and that may actually include the full circle of nuclear, not just discovery and, and production of the, of the fuel source. Um, so I, I think that's a bit of amusing, but I, I think if you look back at history, that's kind of what, that's kind of where the big money could come from. And, you know, if you think back to the roots of, of um, in fact, when I was a young geologist 30 years ago, I hate to admit that, um, Total Minatco was actually very active in the Athabasca Basin making discoveries at a place called McLean Lake, which is now run by Orano, the French giant. But that was Total Monaco. That's, that's an oil company. And um, I think that's a fascinating piece that's a bit missing it in this cycle, but could actually come. And um, it, it could be quite intriguing. Yeah, it might, it might, it might be, because I, I guess things have changed. You know, the, the oil companies are trying to clean up their act, certainly the public ones anyway, um, you know, getting getting out of um, lots of, quite frankly, very lucrative areas of their business because they want to, don't want to be perceived by activists as 
fossil fuel companies anymore. It's, it's quite bizarre. So maybe nuclear, having kind of gone through gone through that um, uh, revolving door themselves, are now maybe back back in the back back in the building where they're being perceived as clean energy once more. So may, maybe it could be a nice avenue, but it, the trouble is the scale just isn't there. The importance is the scale isn't. And I just wonder whether those big guys will look at this and go, actually, I, I can't because you know, BHP's, you know, you know, famously not not really interested in their in their uranium, they're interested in their copper project at Olympic Dam. You've got oil companies perhaps trying to reinvent themselves, and will this come under the the right banner for them? Will it will it allow them to make money? Is this, would it be a, a, a PR stunt? Who, who knows? But who, who else is out there which is kind of would be would be looking in? Do you think the consolidation model is the right way to go? You know, we looked at what you know Cameco have done in the last couple of years. They've kind of you know added a few new strings to their bow, um, and maybe the more holistic view is is the way forward. Do you think? Yeah, holistic in a sense of of the the fuel cycle. Yeah, just that full full cycle delivery, yes. right? So it's not just mine. We're not mining because the one that's attractive what? because there's a kind of rewrite because I'm not a miner. Miners yeah. kind of get a negative um, multiple. Um, you've got people further down the line and capturing the value the whole way down the value chain is, is quite good. And perhaps that's what utilities are looking for. It's like, tell you what, just, just deal with everything for me. Um, I don't want to have to think about it anymore. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. What is going to attract this big money in these big players, whether it's oil or other? Um, you know, it's a part of their portfolio. And then what is it going to attract in? It's the scalability. Now, in the 70s, that scalability probably wasn't there. They were looking at discovery, production, all the hype around it. They weren't in the cycle. And, you know, if there's an opportunity to bring in, you know, some of that, those big players out of, out of the oil patch, for instance, that, um, you know, could actually step in and go, okay, we're going to help you invest in conversion. You know, that links them directly to the utility. Now, oh, let's buy into the utility and actually produce power. Don't forget, Cameco did that for many years in a very low uranium market, seven, eight, nine dollar uranium. Cameco went out and invested in Bruce Power. It, it, 33% interest, I think, and that actually gave them a ton of revenue and allowed them to build MacArthur the cigar, right? So I think there's opportunities there within the space beyond just the Athabasca or other jurisdictions for primary production for these big players. They're looking to go, okay, we've got to, we want to move away from fossil fuels, not completely, but how are we going to make our portfolio cleaner, the ESG? How are we going to make that look better? So one is, you're seeing them do it already. They're moving into solar, okay? They're moving into wind. They haven't yet moved into nuclear. And I think it's a missing component for some of these former fossil fuel companies to actually go out and start investing in it. And now, has that started yet? No, but history says it absolutely could happen. So, you know, especially if the government's going to incentivize it, what better way for fossil fuel companies to reinvent themselves and to get tied with the government's providing a solution to the public that is, you know, essentially carbon-free energy. Could be a great scenario. Yeah. You know, history says it's happened before. Could happen again. It, it, and it, it could, it could. And, I, and I'm just conscious this all <laughs> needs to happen in the backdrop of, you mentioned ESG, and it just kind of gets you thinking the number of projects which have been like halted or stopped because of that, let alone the kind of 
First Nations type concerns, which was not being addressed by the companies that, you know, you look today just at, you know, Mountain Valley Pipeline um, project is, you know, the, well, what we're saying is the court has basically stopped construction there. Um, you know, so all forms of energy are under close scrutiny and, you know, nuclear is going to have to kind of, I guess, up, up, up its game, um, like, like all energy companies and make sure that people under, understand what it's about. Um, I think that it's, there's got a little bit of a tailwind with these sort of SMR type delivery systems, um, in the West and it seems to have some, some kind of backing. Um, governments need to get out of the way of themselves and actually stop talking a good game and actually start helping. That's what it feels like, you know, looking in from outside, just on the energy transition, but I'm not, not speaking just only as a uranium uh, equities investor, although would, I, I definitely think that as a uranium <laughs> equities investor, government needs to step up and help kind of bring the space space together. Um, like, just, just in terms of just finishing off with, you know, what, what you're saying, I, I was even contacted as recently as yesterday by some of the um, IR teams of the ver of various uranium CEOs, uh, uranium companies. Um, they're a bit nervous, a little bit nervous about what's happening out there. Timing of all of this, every year since I've been doing this, we've talked since 2019, September is the month where utilities start making decisions. Is it going to happen this year? Is it? Looks like the companies don't even know. So what's your thoughts? My thoughts are it's it's going to happen, Matthew. Uh, absolutely. And, and um, you know, why why do I sound so confident in that? Because um, everything we've talked about today, it, it, it is it is happening. Um, you're starting to see things out of, out of Cameco and others where you're getting long-term contracting warming up. I mean, let's be honest, uh, long-term contracting with Cameco in Q1, as an example, I think it was Q1, um, early Q2, actually almost matched all of last year's contract. And that's just at the start of the year. So I believe there's more to come. And I believe once it starts to flow and, and start to get that hockey stick model going on the long-term side, that's when everything comes along with it. And, um, you know, some CEOs out there are probably rightfully nervous. Um, I can't say I'm never not nervous because you should be. It keeps you on your toes. That's good. But, you know, for, for, from Canalaska's perspective, we're well-funded. You know, we, we did a fairly large raise, you know, eight to 10 months ago. We've got over $11 million in the bank as of this week. Um, that um, we have a lot of runway in front of us yet that, you know, some of our peers don't have. And we're in a bit of a, a good state here as a company. And we've got good partnerships with Cameco, our West MacArthur joint venture, where we're drilling our high-grade pike zone, 42 zones. And we've also got a very good partnership with Denison Mines in the Athabasca Basin, where we've got a brand new high-grade discovery only three months old. Uh, with them right near their Griffin and Phoenix deposits where they're trying to put ISR production into uh, into part of the stream here, which, you know, looks very promising based on the recent news from Denison. So we've got very strong partnerships. We're very well funded. I've got an incredible team with 150 years of Athabasca-focused experience on it. And we are making discoveries in the last 12 months. And um, it's just an incredibly good time for Can Alaska. Um, and I'm remarkably not all that nervous yet, 
But, you know, uh, we've got a good team. We're well-financed, and I think we're in the right space for what is coming uh, very quickly after that slap shot, and that's a goal. And that's Canalaska's game. 